The following show was made by the showmaker at Access Radio Taranaki 104.4 FM. Thanks to New Zealand on air. Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that gets deep into the psyche of those who have achieved the extraordinary, from sports people to business people to social change innovators, cutting to the chase to unlock the secrets of their success. Brought to you by Running Hot Coaching, the platform that helps you achieve all your health and fitness goals. Well, welcome to the show, everybody. It's Pushing the Limits. I'm Lisa Tamati, and I'm here today with Naresh Kumar. Naresh is an adventurer, an ultramarathon runner, a software engineer, and a project engineer, and many things besides. Welcome to the show, Naresh. Hey, so good to be here, Lisa. Thanks so much. <laughs> no, it's really exciting to have you on. Um, Naresh, you've done a lot of things. Can you give us a bit of background about your life like where where did you come from where were you born how did you end up in new zealand um i was born and raised in india in a very uh, small suburb in a place called chennai in south mm-hmm. india that's where i was born and raised uh, very much in very poor conditions and um your survival is all about just studying hard and working so hard pretty much all your life Right. But what ended up in New Zealand was 2001, the preview of Lord of the Rings. I still remember watching the preview, sitting in the slum, and I was like, damn, which country is that? Where is this place? And kept that dream alive in me, and here I am talking to you after <laughs> running the length of the country. That's amazing. That's amazing. So your childhood um explain to me a little bit your family background like your your parents and you've got siblings uh yes so mom and dad uh again from a very poor family uh in a place called andhra pradesh wanted to make life and move to a city uh to Mm -hmm. a suburb dad pretty much worked 365 days he never took any uh vacation and i have a younger sister who's now settled and happily married and living in bombay Yep. So, uh, yeah, so pretty much when you're growing up, you're just living on one meal a day, wearing torn clothes to school, but you have all this big dream growing up, but you just can't do it because winning a bread and eating three squares a day is, itself is a big success. So wow. it was conditions like that that I grew up in. I uh, went to a, a very small school, worked very hard, and got my scholarship to go to an engineering school. And life happened and worked in IT, worked for some big names, and wow. eventually ended up in California. That's that's an incredible story in itself, without even all the, the sporting side of who you are. Um, I mean, for, for most New Zealanders, that sort of um, quality of life or, or um, standard of living, if you want to put it that way, is... Um, foreign for us I mean we expect a certain standard of living even when we uh, haven't got very much we certainly don't ever go really hungry that um, is so true because yeah. 
I used to speak to kids in the schools in New Zealand as a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, what we take it for granted, the very basic thing like water. I asked the kid, what do they do to drink water? And they said they just go to a tap, open mm-hmm. the tap and drink water. But the <laughs> same water comes with a big price. I have to wake up with my family at least four in the morning uh, once a week to get this uh, dirty water that the government supplies. And you're standing in line fighting for just uh, 20 liters of water that's going to survive, sustain you for one week. And that's all you get. It's like pretty much a chlorinated water that you get. There are a lot of things that you fight uh, for survival, which, you know, a lot of people all over the world just take it for granted. This is, it is foreign concept for us. You know, we have it really uh, in a lot of ways so easy and we talk about like first world problems that we've got but it really is like that you know Um, how did that sort of a harsh upbringing shape your character and personality for what you've done you know later in life and what you've achieved Um, conditions like that it kind of humiliates you especially going to school with torn clothes the only good thing that I had was my good grades because of which, you know, I had friends because they knew that I can always come around and help them with their homework and stuff like that. Right. But was never this outgoing, was this super shy, no confident guy sitting in the last row and always do anything to avoid the spotlight on me. Huh. Um, in India, they have this crazy um, celebration on your birthday Instead of uniforms, you get to wear um, your birthday dress and you give candies to all the kids in your class. That's a happy day for a lot of kids, but not for me, you know, because everyone judges you by the the dress that you wear. And my parents are working nonstop to just keep me in school. And the last thing I want to go and ask them for is some clothes and candies. It was always conditions like that. But, you know, those conditions toughens you up that you know when the whole world is against you you just don't want to give up you know you are like with whatever things i have and whatever you know resources are at my disposal i'm gonna use every single thing out there just to keep your head above the waters and keep right. breathing forget about living you know you're just you just want to keep surviving just survival mm-hmm. and you're obviously born with a very good brain which has um, obviously helped um you look beyond to the, the, the confines of poverty. Um, was it a big shocker for you to start to climb out into the, the wider world, if you like, and, and to get a scholarship? What was that like, going from the, you know, the confines of, of your upbringing into, say, going to the States and, and studying and all that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, it was quite a shocker. Um, scholarship and, you know, ended up, getting big grades, started working for Dell computers as soon as possible. But then, you know, once went to the States, it's like a whole new world out there. And it kind of gets intimidating, you know, as, as a guy who has never went to a fine restaurant to eat any kind of food. <laughs> it's funny how um, I went on a client uh, dinner as soon as I landed in the uh, U.S. and I ordered this thing on the menu and I called it uh, Philip Mignon. And the chef ended up laughing so hard. And they're like, oh, that's not Mignon, it's filet mignon. I'm like, oh, my God, it's so so embarrassing yeah. already being in a client lunch mm. and I'm the project manager there. So, mm. but, you know, hey, mistakes are the only way you learn. You know, there's nothing to be embarrassed about. 
I'm sure he couldn't have produced, um, pronounced something in Indian, could he? Or yeah. So <laughs> I had to make it up. I'm like, oh, is that how you call it in US? We call it Philip McNaught in India. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> Sounded like a bit like an arrogant twat, really. <laughs> um, but so. <laughs> I mean, for me, it just fascinates me how someone can rise above those situations. What are the chances for for a kid like yourself growing up in that sort of environment to make it, if you like, out out into the big world and and to be able to live the dreams that you have lived? Uh, Mainly hard work. The the resources and chances are out there. But to put things in perspective, my city alone has 10 million people. (gasps) The entire New Zealand has four and a half or five million people. Unbelievable, yeah. So with that comes a lot of competition. So the scholarships are very few. So you are working so hard. I've never slept uh, before midnight and I've never slept any time after five in the morning. My dad would just wake me up every single day. And even if one of those days you are tired, you would just pull you by your ear and show you the next door neighbor's uh, door all lit up. Mm. Saying that, you know, that kid was up since four in the morning and he's fighting for the same scholarship that you are studying for. If every minute that you're sleeping, someone is gaining on you. And but but how do you live under that sort of a pressure and not break down? I suppose breaking down is just a luxury that only uh, first world people can afford. Yeah, I mean, breaking down is not an option. It's like a luxury for you. It's it's just survival. You either do it or you just don't do it. There's no point of, oh, I'm going to drop out and figure out what I want to do in life. Mm. Like how I see some kids with backpacks traveling around the world. Good for them. But at that point of time, every year, I was two grades ahead even at any point of time. Wow. You have to be the best of the best. And that doesn't go just with education, but even at workplace, you don't get promoted because you have the potential. You get promoted because you're already doing the role that you want to go to. So it's just a designation change that you do. Wow. So 80 yeah. hour, 90 hour working is not a big deal because if you're not going to do that, there are a million people standing in line to do that. We just have no idea, have we? <laughs> I think it's the sense of insecurity and the fear that drives you, especially when you have a family to take care of. Yep. No, and, and so, yeah, let's get into that topic because what is the driving factor that makes someone perform at that level? Um, I mean, uh, in the you know corporate speaking or whatever I do or in the schools that I speak to and stuff we are always looking for that where do you get that drive and that passion and that absolute determination people are always asking me that Mm -hmm. Um, and what I've done is nothing compared to what you've done Um, where does Uh, that that absolute drive come from Norris? I think it's all relative you know in terms of accomplishments you have done amazing things but um, in terms of my drive, I think it was, it's all about uh, telling the, the guy who's looking at you and saying that you can't do it and you just want to go out there and prove them wrong and mm. at least die trying proving <laughs> them wrong. Because growing up, you know, we didn't have any kind of support from family or friends yeah. and pretty much it was just dad was the breadwinner mom was mom never went to school she hardly can read and write yeah so dad being the only breadwinner and 
he knew early on that the only way to get out of this poverty is by giving good education and he did everything he could while all the friends and relatives everyone comes and says no you are a laborer that's what your sons should become don't even dream about making them an engineers because they just don't have it in them you are a laborer a daily worker that's what your kids are going to become and just a deep desire from inside that comes in like who are you to tell me or define me what i want to become in life i'm going to i'm i'm going to go and become what i want to become so to this day dad doesn't have like mercedes benz or any expensive gears or stuff like that but when he goes to his village people just drop their jaws because they look at him and say wow you really did it. it yeah one kid a successful project manager in california and your daughter my sister was a successful engineer for boeing airline in <sighs> seattle how did this happen so when he ray walks with his chest lifted up and mm. head held high so that was his biggest accomplishment so to one word the drive always came from proving other people wrong hmm. and and this is um something that i've thought about often too it is it is about what whatever whatever stimulation you need to get to where you want to go you take it whether it's you know proving someone else wrong whether it's um yeah trying to prove to yourself something whatever it is it doesn't have to be a, a positive thing it can be use that that negative anger or that that energy whatever it is to get you over the line you know absolutely yeah and your father nowadays and your mother are they still in the same village are they still there or Well, uh, they they're in a very good place now. They're still living in Chennai. Mm-hmm. Dad retired, uh mom um happily re- living a retired life with playing with a grandson Lovely. uh from my sister. Yeah. Um and worked pretty hard uh to put a roof on top of their head and enough money in their account to uh you know take care of their daily living so that I can do whatever I'm doing right now. Wow. So it it everything becomes a, a standard that you set yourself is what you end up achieving isn't it when i um look at people when they if they identify as something then they will hold themselves to that standard and in in my coaching i i talk to athletes about mm-hmm. identifying themselves as an athlete because then if you internalize that you will hold yourself to that standard it's like I don't go for a week without brushing my teeth because I have that standard that I will do that twice a day at least. Um Definitely. And that's a standard the same thing that that applies whether you're an athlete or whether you're a businessman or whether what an adventurer whatever it is if you have that standard or that identity in your head that's what you are and that's what you become through the daily rituals. Would you agree that's with that? Oh, absolutely. And like you said, you know, you will never accomplish great things with small goals. You got to like set your standards pretty high and live up to it. Yep. Or die trying, like you said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about failure? Um 
I know that you know we'll get on to one of your massive achievements recently was was walking the length of our gorgeous country on the Te Aranoa Trail for our listeners out there that's a trail that goes from Cape Reinga to the Bluff and it's 3,000 kilometres of the toughest terrain you can imagine sometimes um, and with the, with the toughest weather um, to do something on that massive scale you must have dealt with the fear of failure with the, f- the fear that you couldn't do it physically um, there must have been many th- hundreds of hours where you're, where, you're, where you're asking yourself what the hell am I doing did any of that sort of self-doubt and, and those sort of things come at you and what did you do to, to overcome that Oh yeah, I mean, um, my um, I call him like you know, American Papa uh, Lazarus Lake, the mm-hmm. um, the guy who's responsible for Barclay Marathons, the yeah. world's oh. toughest race. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds so, like an absolute nutcase. <laughs> mm-hmm, absolutely, and I am who I am today because of that guy. Really, uh, I call him my American Papa, and we used to sit and hang around and eat hot food and drink moonshine all day. <laughs> And, <laughs> and uh, he always says, he, this one thing that I'll always remember is, um, you cannot, um, he says you will never accomplish great things with small goals. And there is no guarantee that you will have another chance tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that always resonates with me so much. And the first time, I, I, had, I went on for a long streak with absolutely no DNF. So pride kind of creeps in yep. and you're like, oh, I'm a guy who's like unbreakable. <laughs> I can do anything I want to do. Yep. And um, when I spoke to him for the first time and he says, what's your best 100 mile? And he said, you know, uh, I'm like, oh, maybe like 24 hours. Yeah. What a loser. Your age, I used to run 17 and 16 hour 100 mile <laughs> races. So that means that you're not pushing hard. <laughs> And he says, He's a hard a man, obviously. Uh huh. And he says, A challenge cannot be a real challenge unless there is a possibility of failure. Yep. If you never DNF, you aren't sticking your neck out far enough. If you uh. never DNF, success cannot taste as sweet. So um, that was my first taste of failure. I pushed so hard the very next race, and I ended up with a miserable DNF. But the pain of losing fades, uh, Lisa, but the yep. joy of trying, man, that lasts forever. You could still sleep peacefully even with the DNF knowing that there wasn't anything. You gave absolutely everything you got in your tank yep. that day. And, and I think f- um, for for young people, you know, listening to this, f- failure is a part of every road to success. If you haven't failed, then you haven't stuck your neck out you haven't pushed the limits which is the name of this show um, you haven't lifted your horizons high enough um, and, and it is very humbling experience and I've failed on a number of occasions and I've always looked back on them and tried to analyse what went wrong how I did it wrong and it was one of the things in one of your interviews where you said you can't control everything sometimes oh. you give 100% and it still turns to custard and that's okay you, as long as you gave that 100% yeah absolutely and the fear of failure you know, fear is a very powerful thing as mm. long as you channel it for good because it can be a thief that it can just steal everything from mm. you and leave you like a failure or 
you can channel it so good that you can come out stronger than you, you know you started use it as a motivation rather than um, freezing up because of it yeah absolutely yeah. and there is no success if failure is not in the mix yeah. i think as a society you know growing up in india failure is not an option you know you just can't fail success is the only thing that you should always have in your life anything anytime you fail you are the biggest loser and you are taken out of the equation wow but when you look at all the best expeditions and adventurers and innovators and creators they all failed so miserably a lot of times not a just lot. one yeah. I would totally agree with that and um, yeah I've failed on many occasions so I'm well acquainted with that that philosophy (laughs) (laughs) yeah and coming from a a country like India where you have just literally so many people it does redefine you know we live in a country with four million and I still think we have it hard as far as competition going we've got absolutely no idea really how hard it must be to break through is is then there a less uh, is there less humanity when you are so when you when there are so many people around and so tough the competition is life oh. very cheap is it very um you know well on to the next one if you're no good yeah, I mean, um, yeah, talking about humanity and poverty, I mean, that's a whole another podcast together. But mm. yeah, life is very, very cheap and completely um, replaceable. You are not anything when you're in a country like India, mm. when there are so many people out there. There is nothing that sets you apart. You know, there because there are even jobs, people have so many people with job security because if they don't go that extra mile, they will lose their job and they're going to be replaced by 100 other people who are just waiting out there. Um, Yeah, in terms of like even survival, food, water, education, it's it's a pretty tough situation out there. And I would Mm. say India is still like a much better place compared to even more worse third world countries. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and so do you think that breeds a country of higher achievers um, on average or does it breed um, yeah, less humane society? No, it just definitely works out for good. I mean, for one reason why you see so many smart kids from, uh, you know, from India. Who, I mean, Google CEOs and all the other CEOs of big corporations are from India. Mm. So it definitely puts in that challenging uh, spirit in there. Because they learn to fight for survival at a very, very young age. Because failure is not an option. You Mm. have to do what you have to do, whatever it takes to keep your head above the surface. And you see that when you travel, um, um, you know, to to third world countries, that people are on the streets selling flowers. They're selling whatever they've got. They're selling matchboxes. So there is no there is no safety net, and so they have to find something to do to get uh, their next meal. Um, yep. And that attitude I've always admired is is you know there's there's perhaps less rules and regulations about what you do, but there is one rule, and that's survival. And I think we can, in our comfortable, beautiful, peaceful country that we live in, take a lesson and in, in one in gratitude for all the beautiful resources that we have, oh. that, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the fact that we live with only four million people and the competition isn't 
you know as horrendous as it is elsewhere and these are lessons that are, are just so valuable for our, our youth who's many of them have too much they get too many yeah. presents you know all my little nephews and 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 nieces and and godchildren and stuff i don't buy them presents not because i don't love them <laughs> no. it's because i don't want to propagate that whole thing yeah. that everything comes easy i'd rather spend time with them i'd rather you know um help them develop their character or, or that type of thing rather than buying them material goods do you see that like coming from where you are now to living in new zealand do you see that amongst our young generation? Oh, I mean, it just boils my blood. During Tiararoa, uh, that was the time I think iPhone uh, 6 got released, and uh, I didn't even know what was going on in the, the rest of the world. When I come on Twitter and see all this, and how many kids were swearing and calling their parents mm. names just because mm. they have the iPhone 6 Plus and their parents refused to buy them 6S. And you, you have You're so, so wrong. <laughs> so wrong. So wrong in so many levels. And I was at this cafe and I, I'm hearing these teenage kids, you know, complaining to each other about how bad their parents are because they, they were saying that they are the worst parents ever because they didn't buy them the latest 6S Plus mm. and mm. bought them the model one model older than that. And I think it's the sense of entitlement mm. that also comes along with it just because you're born in a first world country or in a western country a lot of things people think that they are entitled to yep. but they're not entitled to anything man i mean everything is hard work Your parents yep. must have worked so hard to put that in their hands but they just don't appreciate it no i totally agree and i think it's something that needs to be addressed more and more that become aware and when you when children grow up then they still have that sense of entitlement and an arrogance and that the world owes them a living and then very often they get knocked over the head because you know like whoa life comes at them um, and then they can't cope because they haven't had that having to fight having to earn having to learn those lessons of you work for an hour you get paid a little bit to go and buy this if you if you've been given everything i mean spoiling children um is is a, is a major problem i think in our in, in our world um yeah totally that's when when i was when i go to the kids uh, to the schools to talk to the kids mm -hmm. I tell them don't even take this building for granted because when I used to go to school, I used to carry a trash bag during monsoons because <laughs> my school was all um, uh, stitched with coconut leaf roof and it starts flooding and we were next to a nice uh, sewage canal that gets overflowed into the classroom. So you're sitting in like <laughs> ankle deep of water with like water inside the classroom with a trash bag on your head. Oh my yeah. God. And, and the bag is just to protect your textbooks. And you have like beautiful buildings here. And you no, know, we used to have like one teacher for a class of like 40 or 50 kids. <sighs> Whereas here it's like a one to 13 or one to 20 ratio. I look at kids and say, kids, I mean, just go and hug your teachers every single day because <laughs> you have no idea what they're doing for your life. And the same thing for your parents, just go and don't help your mom with the dishes and hug them every day for giving this beautiful life because there are so many kids out there i mean parents want to send them to school but they just can't yeah because yeah. they just can't afford them to go to school anymore 
Wouldn't it be great to um, do a bit of a swap for a year, <laughs> send a whole <laughs> lot of our kids over there and bring a whole lot over here, <laughs> give them an education? Um, you know, like that's. I mean, I remember I did a race over in Niger uh, in Africa, and it was you know it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And at the end of it, we had a whole lot of school supplies and pens and you know all these things that we took to the schools. We got to the school, which is like a concrete block of a room with a thousand kids in it, and we realised we bought all these pens. These kids had no paper. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how useless was that? Um, we bought all the you know the food that we that we had left over from the the race and and lollies and you know lots of good things for the little kids. Yeah. Um, the kids were beating each other up to get to them. The teachers were whipping the children to get to the food first. Um, oh. And we realised we just have no comprehension of of just how bad things are, you know? Like we were trying to, as Westerners, do something good and bring in something, and we just realised that actually we just have no idea, you know? It was, was quite a humbling experience. Uh, absolutely. I mean, um, on that same note, right, I was speaking at the school, and that's when we just had um, the Nepali earthquake. Yep. And um, I was speaking at some schools in Palmerston North, just to instill the um, the spirit of giving that you know whatever you own is not yours but it's meant it's given to you to be shared with others. Mm-hmm. I I asked this one kid sitting in the first row asking how, how what he has in his pocket and he said he has two New Zealand do- uh, dollars in his pocket and I like so what can you buy for it? Oh maybe a couple of lollies uh, on the way back home. I said. That's that's like one. I opened up my computer. It was connected to a uh, projector. I said two New Zealand dollars in Nepali rupees, and bam, it came to one hundred and forty Nepali rupees. Mm-hmm. And the kids have no idea what it means. Mm. So I told them in Kathmandu, a good lunch costs thirty rupees. Yeah. So you can and buy five days worth of food. Yeah. Or six kids can eat. Uh, five kids can eat like a good meal. Uh, for one uh, one good meal a day for the same rupees. So please help the Nepali kids and everyone because they have this massive earthquake and it's a poor country. And it was heartwarming, you know, to see the, the donation jar overfilled uh, the next day. Yeah. As long as the kids knew what it could buy for the other kids in Nepal. But how, how do you um, equate that then? Because we could all give 100% of everything away um, and we wouldn't get very far um how and this is something that as a young kid I really really struggle with you know what and what rights do I have to have anything then if if like you say two dollars buys that have I got a right to go and buy a coffee for lunch and have dinner out and um you know where, where do you draw that line and have I got a right to do all my adventures which cost a lot of money um mm-hmm. You know, like, and, and you've done a lot of that too. How much mm-hmm. do you give back? How much do you justify yourself? Where does your line in the sand? Yeah, it's, um, it's a very good question. It's very relative. Trust me, I just came back from India. We had the worst floods ever in South India where millions got displaced overnight with mm-hmm. nothing left. People were like staying on rooftops for weeks together. And I, I definitely struggle when I look at them and I was raising some funds to help people 
then that's when, you know, your head goes back to the days back in California when, mm. why was I drinking that Starbucks coffee? That coffee was five US dollars. That's yeah. like 400 rupees in India, which can feed a family for two days. Mm. It's definitely uh, it's a hard, battle. Yep. And it's a very relative thing. I think life is meant to be enjoyed and, you know, every man to himself. But at the same time, you know, as long as you have that giving attitude and take care of others, I think that's all it counts. Yep. Not about give like how much you, you give. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's a principle that I've st- you know lived by because I do go and have my coffees and I do, you know, like nice things. and um, But I always try and give more than I ever take in every aspect whether it's time and energy or whether it's money or whether it's looking after your family uh, I think that's um, an attitude because you have to be able to remain in the society living functioning working making more money in order to give money you know there's a there's mm-hmm. a part of it there's that as well yeah Right, now, Rish, let's, let's talk about Te Araroa because, you know, this this is a trail that's 3,000 k's long. What 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 was it like? <laughs> Simplified question there. <laughs> what was uh, it like? What was it like? <laughs> How many days did it take in the end? I know you were trying so to do it under I did 90. it in eight, 87 days, wow. 21 hours, 28 minutes and 56 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you can see how much I remember because I remember every single second out there on the trail. Yeah. This yeah. is like any unlike anything I've ever done. Um, puts you to the absolute test, mm. yet one of the most uh, beautiful uh, thing that I've ever done in my life. Um, I came here and I thought, you know, Lord of the Rings and the scenery was spectacular, no doubt about it. One of the most beautiful country in the whole world. But along the way, like within three days, my whole attitude towards Tearoa changed. It mm. wasn't about the scenery. I wasn't like dying to get to Tongariro or Mount Cook or anything. Yep. But it was all about that random acts of kindness that I was started receiving from people that just changed me as a person uh, during Tearoa. Yep. It was not the scenery because, you know, these days, if you have the best camera and the right skills, anyone te- can take good pictures. But the experiences that you go through when you do Terroa, man, it's it is something. You guys are something. I've traveled to so many countries, and I've seen some crazy hospitality, but nothing is going to be the Kiwi hospitality for a long time. That's awesome to hear. I'm <laughs> stoked. But I think people are also very inspired by someone like yourself and willing to 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 help along the way because we are that sort of a nation of pioneers and, you know, we've come from journeying and and, and we travel a lot. Our kids travel a lot, you know. Uh-huh. I travelled for years and experienced amazing hospitality in other countries too and I think uh, we like to, to give that back. So that was... The biggest thing that you took away from Te Araroa, um, the hospitality, the kindness, meeting of strangers, spending time with people, actually experiencing the day-to-day? Oh, absolutely. I mean, running from uh, running a long section one day, I saw this janitor cleaning up the roads. She didn't have to do anything. She, could, she may have had a long day. She could have just continued uh, with her work. But she pulls over just to ask me if I'm doing okay. And as soon as I said, I'm running the length of New Zealand, the first question is always, why? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and 
when I insisted and said a no to her help, she wanted to drop me at the next McDonald's, which was 15 <laughs> kilometers away. When I said no, she was like my mom, Lisa. She just stepped out. She pulled over the truck, got out of the truck. She talked to me for a while, and she said, I was standing you know, next to the truck, and she walks inside the truck, gets her lunch, homemade, all good, healthy sandwich. And she just said, like, look at how skinny you are. Put some food inside you. <laughs> I felt bad for taking her food because she had a long day, too. I'm like, no, you know what? Let's split the sandwich and eat it. Uh-huh. We were on the side of the road with her truck parked next to each other, sharing stories, eating that sandwich. And just changes you, like, why is she doing what is she doing? You know, mm-hmm. she didn't have to care. And, you know, I'm this skinny, dark, long-haired, bearded, <laughs> Indian boy with trekking poles. I mean, honestly, anyone is going to get scared. There are people who pull their kids next to them as soon as I walk in. I'm not going to lie. But here's a person who just totally trusts me and is taking care of me. Why would she do it? She didn't have to do it. And so many places when I was about to... This is my favorite story when I share... Tell a Roa story during my motivational speaking. I got to Patau and one of the coldest day, the longest day for me, 92 kilometers. Oh. And I just wanted to crawl and die. Yes, I just didn't want to wake up the next day with wind chill, 100 kilometers per hour, wind speed. I couldn't even pitch in my tent. Oh. I walked to this public bathroom and it was perfect. I measured, <laughs> I walked in, I'm like, it was five feet, I'm 6'4. I'm like, okay, I can <laughs> crouch. At least it's not windy here, though it's a bit stinky. That's fine. That's the last thing you worry about. <laughs> You're used to it, I suppose. <laughs> so, yeah, that's at 7 o'clock. At 7.20, you're not going to believe this. At 7.20, I was in the jacuzzi, 45 degree hot, bubbling hot water, with two ice cold beers in my hand. In 20, like BMW, you know, how they advertise it goes from zero to 106 seconds. <laughs> Oh, I love it. A public bathroom with a jacuzzi in 20 minutes. So that's Kiwi hospitality and for that, you. Yeah, and that's traveling. You know, I've slept in a couple of toilets myself around the world and or factories and cemeteries. And God, it, you, you do what you got to do when you're, when you're out on the road, eh? And then someone oh. comes along, oh, you know, I've experienced similar things in places like oh, Norway once I remember biking through um, Sweden and Norway and Finland and, and absolute freezing up by the North Cape somewhere and just so tired from weeks on the road and we had very little food. We had, you know, I hadn't been dry in three weeks and some guy comes mm-hmm. along and picks us up and takes us home and we stay there for three days recovering and, and eating the best food and yeah. treated like... And, and his thing was he was a humanitarian. He just wanted to help people, you know. Yeah. Uh, what you know the people like that you just in fact my um, whole life was changed because of that sort of attitude my mum is one of those types of ladies that helped you with the sandwich she brought home a young Austrian uh, who was cycling through our country and, and uh-huh. had an accident on our mountain up here and got hit by an avalanche so when they found him of course mum went up there and invited him to come yeah. and live with us for the next uh, few months and that was me <laughs> I fell in love with him and ended up doing everything I've done, you know. So that's what the power of, of um, you know, hospitality and, and 
and random meeting of people it can can change your life. You never know. Oh, you definitely. never know. It's a beautiful story, man. It's really yeah. cool. What about some of the toughest challenges, like physically? Were there moments uh, where you thought, like, what the hell am I doing? How am I going to survive this? Um, you know, there's snowstorms. There's I know I know what some of our alpine terrains like. Um, and even though the highest point's only 1,900 metres or so, yeah. that's high alpine um, for some of those places. You know, like I, we organised the Northburn 100, the race down south, and that only goes up to 1,600, but that's alpine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and the, and the weather, how did, you, how did you survive all that? Um, yeah, again, especially with a solo adventure like this when you're all by yourself. I had mm. some friends join me on the South Island, but some of the toughest section that I was going through in North Island. Um, the craziest thing that happened was when I was uh, wading through this river, you have a 5K walk through a gorge uh, and um, getting swept in a flash flood. Oh. I don't know if you read any of my story before, but this is the first time I've ever done this. Um, I had to like pick up a journal. I was carrying the rain journal and my passport, and literally I had to write my own death note, oh, just saying, shit. "Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. I love you." And I wrote my location, where I was. I know I'm a survivor. Now I have this crazy survival instincts, and I'm gonna do whatever it takes to fight and mm-hmm. get out of it. But I didn't tell my parents that I was doing this adventure while yeah. I was. Yeah tramping the length of New Zealand, they were thinking that I'm looking for a job. I can understand that. (laughs) No point in worrying them, telling Mm. them what you're up to. So at that moment, it was surprising how the brain works. At one point, it was so peaceful and calm, and that prompted me to write this note and put it in my jacket, unclip all my um, buckles off my backpack, just to be ready if I have to let it go and not get stuck to it. Yep. And on the other end is the fear and to do whatever it takes to get out of it. Yep. And man, got like washed out. I couldn't feel the ground. And in white water, maybe like class two, class three rapids, Ooh. holding on to the side of the cliff to like your dear life, climbing using a route, and that gives up and you are back in the river again. Oh, and oh. I know that there was a confluence, it was gonna go and mix with another big river, which is going to be more danger. So yeah, somehow survived that flash flood to tell the story. Yeah. And going forward, got stuck in um, a crazy uh, uh, hurricane, got thrown <laughs> out by a crazy gust, east 160K winds on top of a mountain. I was airborne. I know what it was to like fly for three seconds. Wow. Landed hard on my feet and broke my second metatarsal on my left foot yep. with yep. 480 kilometers to go. Oh, nice. And you're like, God, I mean, I came so close and I'm not going to give up with you know, the finish line so close. So I like, as I said, every man to himself. At that point of time, my dream of finishing TRO was much more bigger than anything else. Yep. yep. And I made this call thinking, the day I can't even walk 15 kilometers, I will pull the plug. Until then, I'm going to keep going. So yep. instead of doing 40, 50K, the mileage fell drastically to 20 and 25, but just kept pushing telling myself a biggest lie that it's not a fracture, it's just going to be a tear, it's going to yep. be okay. 
But after the finish, it found, found that it's, uh, it was a fracture of the second metatarsal. So there were a lot of um, things that went wrong, but hey, that's what adventure is all about, right? If it mm. is easy, it's not an adventure. Yeah, and everyone would be doing it if it was easy. Um, but there are yeah. things that come, you know, when I ran through New Zealand, which is no comparison because I did it on a road, um, my body just started to give up on me. My, you know, my mind still wanted to, to carry on. I was trying to do 70K a day. Um, and that's on roads. Like, you know, you doing 40 to 50 in the mountains is not is no comparison. 70 on the road, piece of cake in comparison. Um, but my body was breaking down to the point where I could only walk uh, with walking sticks. And I remember one point when I was standing at the top of a hill and I was thinking, actually, I had shin splints and a torn hamstring. Oh, my God. And I couldn't take the next step forward because my ankle wouldn't go down the steep incline. Mm -hmm. And so I had a friend come along who was one of my crew, and she goes, oh, that's all right, mate. We'll just turn you around and go down sideways. And that was a... (laughs) So here's me going down sideways one step at a time down the hill and thinking, I've got another 1,500 kilometres to go yet. Um, Mm -hmm. How the hell am I going to make this? And the fear and the doubt of, of... of fear of failure, of not, I was raising money for Cure Kids in Canteen too, um, yeah. and having to be flexible and adjust um, to a certain degree for the sake of actually finishing the distance. So I wanted yeah. to do it in 33 days and ended up 42 days. Yeah. Um, but the, for Absolutely. me, like the overall goal was far more important than, than the number of days, you know? Mm-hmm. So sometimes you have to just work with in your your bounds and find yeah. another way through and if it had taken you 95 days or whatever yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. so be it the, the, if you can finish somehow yeah um, i mean how bad you want it is what is going to take you to the finish line but in my case uh, it was uh, the charity as well uh, i was raising yeah. funds for tier um tier, tier fund. fund yep which was, uh, you know, and the organization was working hard towards rescuing uh, young kids sold into sex slavery. And having mm. been to Nepal and having been there climbing and training a lot, when you're in Kathmandu, in town, and when someone approaches you and asks how many girls you want, mind you, they don't say girl, they say girls. Mm. And it's like a menu card that they offer, you know, like what age group, how many for how many days and it's like mm. a pizza you know they door deliver and they come and pick them up and they're just not one group but there are hundreds of group like that which yeah. makes you think how many are forced into this industry talk oh. about freedom that we take for granted and all these young kids who should be in schools instead being used by grown right. men and women day in day out so when you think about all that uh, struggle and pain, whatever you go through is just nothing. Exactly. And you just want to suck it up and do whatever it takes. Get over to yourself. Get to the finished line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In my case, it was um, kids with cancer. I was raising money for canteen and mm. for cure kids, and I had kids come out who had cancer and, you know, were fighting that. Yeah. And, um, I remember moaning one day that I had another 30 kilometres to run and I asked this young girl what she was doing this afternoon when she left me. She goes, yeah, I'm going to have chemotherapy. Yeah. Well, that, that shut me up pretty quickly. Because yeah. in those kids in, in sex slavery, and I mean, we just can't even imagine. I, can't, I just don't get the world, you know. Yeah. It, it makes me so... Uh, 
Yeah, that's why when Gary Cantrell, the the author of Barclay Marathons, my American papa, he once mm. told me when I was talking about all this and what it takes to go through that endurance, he he gave this amazing analogy. Uh, he said, when you repeatedly bend a metal, it will weaken and it it will eventually break. But mm. when you repeatedly bend the human spirit, it will only get stronger and stronger and stronger. So all that repeatedly bending the map, you know, the human spirit is all these challenges and struggles and adventures and this constant hardships, you know, that makes you the person who you are, mm-hmm. that you stand for your values. And it makes you even more passionate towards the cause that you're working for. And one of the reasons why my campaigns are successful because I'm on the floor putting myself at risk and in danger, giving up my comfort zone. And when people look at it from all over the world, though they want to be there where you are and they couldn't, they want to support you in every way possible because they see how authentic and real you are. Yeah. And for the same reason, tomorrow this time, I'll be riding a 300-kilometer bicycle ride in Queenstown (laughs) for (laughs) Tierfont. And hopefully doing the North Burn a couple of weeks later. Yes, <laughs> maybe we need to talk about yes, that. Yes, we do, we do. <laughs> I'll have to um, try and sort something for you. Um, you know, I but went, do I you... Was a sorry, guy. carry on, Nosh. Oh, sorry. Uh, I was just a simple guy with simple dreams, you know. <laughs> Growing up in poor conditions like that, when I see some backpackers walking my town, the first thing that comes to my head is not about how many countries they would have traveled and what they would have seen. But in my head, I'm like, they could afford to do this in terms of not money, but just time-wise. 17-year-old kid can just take a backpack and travel the world to figure mm-hmm. out what he wants to do. And I didn't travel. I didn't start traveling until I was 30, you know, because life was all about struggle and survival. Yep. But then when the t- right time came, sold my stocks and shares, took care of family, went after my dreams, came to New Zealand, ran the length of it. And last two years, here I am, you know, traveling like almost like 12 countries and nearly like 10,000 kilometers of cycling and miles and miles of uh, running. It was just a simple joy. Just go out there and just living your life. Small example is being in Germany, I remember when I was growing up in poor conditions, someone offered me a dessert. It yep. was later I found that it was black forest and I never knew hmm. how delicious it tasted. But I'm like, where is this? Where is this coming from? What's the recipe? And my research led me to Germany. It was a recipe made in the black forest region of Germany. You know, it's just like a childlike dream. I'm like, you know what? One day I want to go, go there. to black forest. And eat Black Forest, sitting at the summit of Black Forest. <laughs> for any other tourist, it's just going there, taking pictures and coming out. But I ran in Felberg, 50 kilometers, made to the summit, sitting at the sunset. Wow. And a nice uh, old German grandma homemade this amazing slice of uh, cake for me. And in your exhaustion, I didn't even have dinner, water, nothing. All I had was this piece of black forest cake. cake. (laughs) Sitting at the summit, watching the sunset on the black forest range uh, at the highest point, and taking that bite of cake, man, that cake tasted heaven that day. Yeah, I I totally get that. How old are you now, Naresh, 
I, I can ask. I just turned 33. 33, so you're only you're a youngling. And you've, you put work first, family first. Now it's your time to have experiences and then to share those experiences. Um, so one of the things that I've been battling with lately is I'm, I'm 47 and I've had, well, 25 years of, of adventuring, if you like. Um, and now I don't really want to do those big things anymore because I have other priorities. Um, mm-hmm. I've probably done it backwards to what you did it. I'm still going to be doing some of them. Yeah. But it, it does come down to how what your priority is in that slice of life. And right now for me, that's looking after family and and, mm-hmm. and that type of thing and, and getting your business house in order and all that. Do you think that that's legitimate or should you be doing adventure all the way through your life with that? And do you think you will burn out ever doing it at this rate, what you're doing? Oh, but uh, I don't know. One simple answer is uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I go through uh, what you're going through. You know, it's it's like a circle going up and down. Mm. Um, I've been five years into running and the first three years were just crazy, especially 2012. I did 43 ultras that year. I mean, oh, one yeah. every weekend, That's and nuts. one weekend was back to back. And you know, com- competition was everything. I was very competitive, pushing my limits. But after 2013, I just didn't enjoy running. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm like the stress. You know how it is when you oh, yeah. have training, diet, uh, logging all those 120 very... kilometers a week. Ego, yeah, yeah, flying to those destinations and paying all those huge fees to go and run these races. Yeah, then I took a step back and started doing these adventure runs where I just pick a map, mark my own course with very a small backpack, push as much as possible, and just sleep under the stars and start doing that, which eventually led me to Tierra. But also, I struggle, you know, sometimes. Running becomes your identity because mm. that's who you are. Everyone knows you and looks at you as like, oh, yeah. he's a, that's how it becomes. Yeah, but that's the problem I've faced too in the last couple of years, that changing identity and is it okay to be interested in something else and, and yeah. who am I then and what... Um, because it is, that becomes an all-encompassing identity. But you yeah. can't do things in perpetuity. Absolutely not. Nor should we, I think. uh, That's not who you are. You know, sometimes it's more than running. For people who are, you know, it's it's good for them. But I don't think, you know, I mean, I was trying to beat up myself Mm. when I do a DNF and I'm not Mm. doing as much as running. But running is not who you are. You know, there's much more to life, which I'm also in the face of exploring my other joys, which I ended up like, you know, mountaineering, and also doing quite a lot of uh, humanitarian work yep. and using my adventures as a storyteller to help a lot of people. Ah, that's so beautiful because I think that is part of... You've done all this, you've experienced it all. Now's the time to share the wisdom like you are on this radio show. You know, yeah. you are sharing and giving other people insight and, and reason to think um, a little bit outside the box and motivation perhaps I think that's part of your your gift definitely moving forward 
because you do, I, I got into that treadmill of, I've got to do another one, I've got to do another one, I've got to do another one. And yeah. it, it becomes absolutely pointless at some point when yeah. you've done so much, what are you trying to prove anymore? Yeah. Um, Especially for us, Lisa. I mean, you know, amid the pain and suffering is the pure joy of traveling the wide open world, you know, yeah. be it the roads or the mountains. But the main thing, and people find this inspiring, is because all our journey it's nothing you know it, but with our own power going forward it's completely human powered and yeah. when people see that and how you are motivated to push yourself moving forward it's so inspiring and we have a story to tell and why not use that mm. to help out a great cause and also it feeds your spirit of adventure absolutely Naresh I'm afraid we've run out of hour <laughs> Oh wow! And that and, was really and fast, uh, eh? yeah, that went really super fast. In fact, I really want to do another interview with you, um, uh, you know, in a, in a month or two's time, and just carry on some of those subjects because I think um, you've got just so much insight um, into so many things that will help heaps and heaps of people. Um, Naresh, thank you very much for your time today. That was Naresh Kumar. Um, an amazing person, an amazing athlete, um, and an amazing humanitarian as well. Naresh, thank you for your time. Lisa, thank you so much for the opportunity. Pleasure chatting. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Pushing the Limits, brought to you by Running Hot Coaching, your online health and fitness coaching platform. For more information, visit us at www.runninghotcoaching.com. This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki, thanks to New Zealand On Air.